0: Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon. Today, we will be continuing our sermon series titled Acts, United by Fire, and Caleb Thompson will be speaking on Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. In this sermon, we look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira and see how it may challenge some of our assumptions about God. In this story, Luke is committed to making sure that we know that the presence of God has the power to heal and restore but his presence is also one that deserves reverence and awe. We see that sin is much more subtle than we often think, and God takes it all more seriously than we do, so much so that he sent his Son to reconcile us, no matter what we have done, so we can once again be united with God. So we've been looking at the book of Acts this fall, if you've been with us the last few weeks. Uh, We're going through the book and we're focusing on the themes of unity and the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. So we've talked about some of the major themes in the book. We've talked about this new community that's figuring out how to live by the Spirit, living in the tension between law and grace. And we heard last week about the generosity of the community and how they cared for each other. We've also heard of the restorative healing presence of God that was moving through the church at this time. And I won't beat around the bush, this morning we're tackling one of the more difficult stories in the book of Acts. We're gonna be looking at the story of Ananias and Sapphira and it'll be familiar to many of you. Uh, before we jump in, I think it's good to just pause, take a moment and ask ourselves, what habits have I formed when it comes to reading difficult stories in the Bible? Because it might be tempting to avoid or skip over a story like this because honestly, it makes us uncomfortable. But I've learned that discomfort is often something God is using to try to get my attention and to show me something new. So let me pray, and then we're gonna read the story together. Father God, uh, thank you for your word. And you tell us that uh, all scripture is breathed by you and useful for teaching and training in righteousness. And God, we come this morning and we say, we want to live in the way that you have made for us to live. And we want to be the people that you have created us to be. So Holy Spirit, would you come and teach us this morning how to be more like Jesus? We ask this in his name, amen. Let me read Acts five, verses one to 11. If you want to turn there with me. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife, Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not to sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. The word of the Lord. So, how do we approach a passage like this in the Bible when we come across it? And this is maybe not a passage that we would choose for a contemplative reading. It's maybe not the passage where we'd pull out a verse and stick it on a fridge magnet or a coffee mug. Uh, This is a difficult story because it challenges many of our assumptions. And it's important that our assumptions are challenged because, by definition, assumptions are undeveloped ideas or opinions. And this story challenges assumptions about God and his presence and how safe these things are. It also challenges assumptions about the gravity or the seriousness of our sin. And the story makes us uncomfortable, and I think it should. Let me just come out and say I can't resolve this discomfort or tension for us, and I'm not gonna try. But I do have a couple of practices that have been really helpful for me when dealing with a difficult passage in the Bible. And actually, I think these practices are helpful anytime we read the Bible, not just when it's uncomfortable. And so here's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna ask some good theological questions, and I've chosen some of my favorites. There's a lot of questions you can ask theologically, but these are some of the ones I really like. The first question we're gonna ask is, what is the bigger picture that the author is trying to communicate in this story? So this is about context, putting the story into context. Secondly, what does this teach us about God? Thirdly, what does this teach us about people, about humanity, about the church? So these questions will guide our conversation this morning. But before we jump in, I want to share also a couple of quotes that I've found really grounding when dealing with a difficult passage in the Bible. The first one is from the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I know I think I often need to remind myself of this. Um, It's very easy to start thinking that God thinks like I do, that he shares my opinions about people, events, uh, and everything in between. But Isaiah reminds us this is not the case. God's ways are higher and his thoughts are higher. Second, this quote is from C.S. Lewis uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. So if you are not familiar, um, they're having a conversation about Aslan, and they're just discovering that he's a lion. Um, Aslan is the Christ figure in the story, and he is the, he's a lion and he's the true king of Narnia, but he's been displaced from ruling. This is how the conversation goes. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus ultimately calls us friends We sang about that already this morning. And we can have a real friendship with Jesus. But it's also important to remember that while he may be our friend, he's also the king of kings. He's the righteous one. He's the only one capable of judging between good and evil. Finally, one more quote. This is a famous one from Evelyn Underhill. She said, If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshiped. Particularly when we come to a difficult passage in the Bible, there's a temptation to want to immediately understand it. But I think the encouragement from this quote is to let the complexity and the mystery have a bit of room to breathe. We actually can't unravel every mystery. We can't understand everything, and we aren't supposed to. All right, with all of that said, let's jump back into the story. So we're asking some good theological questions. First, we want to ask, what is the bigger picture that Luke is communicating in the book of Acts? And so we've talked, if you were here a couple weeks ago, We've talked about how Luke draws on a lot of Old Testament imagery to demonstrate some of his main points about Jesus and the church. In the first part of this series, we talked about the connection to the Exodus story. There was the 40 days, the significance of the disciples being in Jerusalem, the promised land. And then in Acts chapter two, you have the tongues of fire and that signals us back to the fiery presence of God on Mount Sinai, and also the pillar of fire uh, in the tabernacle in the wilderness. So these th- things are all pointing back to uh, the Exodus story, the origin story of Israel. Um, so the people reading this in the first century would have been very familiar with these things. Now last week Susan talked to us about how the community was becoming a countercultural place. Everyone shared all their belongings, and and there was no poor. Among them, And this fact also actually points back to the tabernacle or the temple, because the original purpose of the temple was to be a place where the generosity and the healing presence of God could be experienced. And then now we come to this story of Ananias and Sapphira, which is actually extremely similar to another Old Testament story about the temple. And this story is in Leviticus, and it's uh, chapter 10, if you wanna go there. I'm gonna read just verses one and two, and you can just look for uh, the similarities between these two stories. So this is uh, after Israel has followed all God's instructions for the tabernacle, they've put everything together, it's very uh, precise the way God wants it set up. And then, Aaron's two sons are the high priests, so they're the ones who can enter the sacred place, the Holy of Holies. They need to be very careful about how they conduct themselves in that space. And this is how the story goes. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, put coals of fire in their incense burners and sprinkled incense over them. In this way, they disobeyed the Lord By burning before him the wrong kind of fire, different than he had commanded. So fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up, and they died there before the Lord. Do you see the similarities between this story and the story we read today? We could go back to the end of Exodus. We could find all the particular instructions that the priests were supposed to follow when entering the presence of God. And these two sons of Aaron, they knew the instructions, but they didn't follow them. And similarly, Ananias and Sapphira knew they were lying to God and the apostles to try to appear righteous. But they did it anyway. And all of this works to defend one of Luke's central points in the book of Acts. And his central point is that the church is the new temple, the dwelling place of God's presence in the world. And just like there were particular instructions for the priests, there are particular things that marked and set apart the church in Acts. And the primary thing that Luke is concerned that the church retains is this, a commitment to God and others over and above a commitment to status and material possessions. Not only did Ananias and Sapphira have the wrong commitment, they lied about it because they wanted it to appear as if they had the right one. And this is similar to the sons of Aaron in the temple. They made fire, but they made it the wrong way. So answering this first theological question What's the bigger picture here? Luke is saying that the church now stewards the dwelling presence of God in the world. And although this presence is not always safe, this presence is ultimately good. Because throughout Acts, when you read the whole book, God's presence is primarily bringing healing and shalom and peace. When you read on in Acts, you discover that this event actually propels the church forward. People have a fear of the church. It's like very different. It's not a seeker-sensitive kind of thing. They're like, don't go in there, you might die. Like, it's like people are scared and we can read on a little bit in Acts and discover that. Um, If we keep going and read verses 12 to 16, this is what it says. The apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. So this is like Luke is contrasting these two temples. You have the the new temple, the church, and then you have the old temple that they're meeting in. But no one else dared join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. As a result of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those possessed by evil spirits, and they were all healed." This is the main focus of the presence of God. God's presence is primarily healing and restoring people. Even through Peter's shadow, Luke is committed to making sure that we know the presence of God has the power to heal and restore us. But it's also a presence that deserves reverence and awe. It's not to be taken lightly. And I think that's part of the bigger story of what Luke is trying to communicate in this story. But next we wanna ask ourselves what the story can teach us about God and what can it teach us about ourselves. I think we can actually answer both of these questions with another question. What does this passage teach about the nature of sin or the theology of sin? And when we talk about sin, we automatically kind of think of the bad things we do, or maybe the bad things other people do, like lying, stealing, gossiping. But in the, in the Bible, sin is always related to trust, and it's really a question of where I place my trust. Sin comes to life in a brief moment, and it's always a moment when we don't trust that God is good, Or that he has our best interests at heart. And I think there's a very familiar story in the Bible that's actually also a little bit similar to the one that we're looking at today. There's a couple, a man and a woman. And they should know what God has said to do, but they're lied to. And then they do the opposite of what God said. And it brings death into the world Adam and Eve, right? It's a little bit similar. And both of these stories are wanting to teach us something about the nature of sin and our tendency not to trust what God has said. And sin always starts with a lie that if we obey God and do what he says, we'll be missing out on something. Something better. And this is true in the garden. If you obey God, and, and you don't eat the fruit, then you'll miss out on being like him, having his special knowledge of good and evil. And likewise, I think the same lie is at work in our story today. And I wanna, I wanna kind of give you this series of lies that I think actually would have been whispered to Ananias and Sapphira. And it, goes some, it would go something like this. Ananias, Think of all the things you could do with this money. If you give it all of it away to the church, you'll be missing out on what you could do with it for yourself. But at the same time, if you don't give all the money, like Barnabas did, then you won't get the glory that he got for being so generous. But if you lie about the sale price, then you can keep some of the money for yourself, so you don't miss out on anything, and you can get all the glory that Barnabas got for his generosity. Why is this little plan so highly associated with Satan? Peter asks Ananias, why have you so let Satan fill your heart? It might not be immediately obvious, but this little plan represents the ultimate turning inward. It's the ultimate rejection of God's way. When you look at the 10 Commandments, the first four are all about loving God, and the next six are all about loving our neighbors. This is how Jesus summed up the law and the prophets, as these two commands, love God and love your neighbor. This is God's heart for us. And look at the plan that Satan brings to Ananias. Keep some of the money back for yourself. Put yourself before your neighbor. Act on self-preservation and fear. And then lie and say you gave it all so that you can be glorified and honored and respected. Steal the glory God deserves and take it for yourself. Act on self-promotion. Self-preservation and self-promotion are the fruit of believing a lie. It's the fruit of not trusting what God says. Not trusting God will provide. Not trusting God will promote. God says that he does those things. So what does this story teach us about sin and God and ourselves? I think it teaches us that sin is much more subtle than we often think. It teaches us that sin really begins with where I place my trust. And when I place my trust in the voice of self-preservation or fear or the voice of self-promotion, I'm not aligning myself with God's priorities in the world. I'm aligning them with someone else's. And this passage also teaches us that God takes all of this much more seriously than we do. And why is this? I think it's because he sees and understands the destruction that self-preservation and self-promotion bring into this world. Because what is the fruit of these things? Ultimately, it's war, tyranny, genocide, murder. All of these evil things flow into the world when we don't trust God to take care of us and when we choose to take care of ourselves and when we want for ourselves a taste of the glory that only God deserves. In his book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott says this, every sin is a breach of what Jesus called the first and greatest commandment. And he goes on to say that sin is not a regrettable lapse from conventional standards. Its essence is hostility to God, issuing an active rebellion against Him. It's taken me personally a long time to understand why God takes sin so seriously. But the Bible always talks about both good and evil as starting out as small, subtle, easy to miss like a seed. Think of a seed. It starts small, but when it grows, it becomes very large and very difficult to miss. And it's easy to see why God hates sin when we look at what's happening in the world right now. People are, when we look at the war in the Middle East, people are being massacred, people are being attacked and killed. It's so easy to see that this is blatant hostility against God's commands, This is blatant hostility against loving God and loving neighbor. But Jesus teaches us that sin never looks like this at first. That's just what sin looks like when it's been allowed to take root and grow. Jesus taught us to look for seeds. We always want to point at trees, right? We get caught in comparison. We look at a tree in somebody else's garden. Well, I'm not as bad as them. But Jesus taught us, look for the seeds. Jesus says, adultery, that's a tree. But lust is the seed. Jesus says, murder, that's a tree. But bitterness, anger, that's the seed. I think Jesus would also say, war is a tree. But pride and arrogance are the seeds. And Jesus is trying to help us see that the seeds are just as dangerous as the trees. If they're watered, if they're tended to, they will become the trees of destruction that we see in the world around us. And if we fail to understand this problem, how can we ever hope to understand the solution? If we don't understand the seriousness of sin, how can we take seriously what Jesus has done for us on the cross? I don't think we can understand the depth of God's love for us if we don't understand the depth of our need for him. This is how Tim Keller summarized the gospel. We've quoted this often. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I want to wrap this up this morning by looking again at the temple. And this is going to lead us into communion. But the temple is so central to Luke's focus in the book of Acts. And the death and resurrection of Jesus brings about two very profound changes to the physical temple. The first is the tearing of the veil. So this was the, this was the veil that protected us from God's presence, from the Holy of Holies, the most profound place of God's presence on earth. And this was the place only the high priest could enter and only after the sacrifice had been made for sin. But after the death of Jesus, Matthew writes that the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil is torn because God and his spirit are coming to dwell in a new temple, the cleansed people of God. And when we believe in what Jesus accomplished on the cross, then the seeds of evil within us begin to die. With him there and a new seed, is planted within us, the seed of the Holy Spirit. And when this seed is nurtured and tended to, given what it needs to grow, it becomes a tree of goodness and life and the kingdom of God on earth. This is how Paul said it in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The second change in the temple has to do with our relationship with each other, but it's no less significant. Here's an image of uh, the first century temple. You can see that pretty clearly. So when you look at this picture, I want you to notice this outer court that's the court of the Gentiles. It's the outermost court. It's on the furthest wall. So this is the, there's, a, there's another wall here. So just inside the court of the Gentiles, there's that wall. There's a few gaps in it. That's the dividing wall. So that's the wall that the Gentiles cannot go past. You're not allowed to go past. You can't get any closer to God's presence. That's us, by the way, Gentiles. And that's as as close as we could get to the presence of God. It's that outer court. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2.14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. This is also temple language. Paul's talking, the dividing wall he's talking about is that wall, Right there, and he's saying it's been torn down. Now there's nothing between us and our brothers and sisters. Not trusting what God has said leads us to act on self-preservation and self-promotion, which separates us from God and each other. We've all experienced this. It's alienation. We're alienated from God, and we're alienated from the people around us. But Jesus has come to restore us To a trusting relationship with God and with each other. And these changes are marked in the physical temple. The veil is torn. There's nothing left between us and God. The dividing wall is broken. There's nothing left between us and each other. And we're invited this morning to the table. No matter what we've done, no matter how we've been living, we're invited. At this table, the body and the blood of Jesus speak to our reconciliation with God. Jesus has died for sin and paid the ultimate price for us to be with the Father. Likewise, this table also speaks to our reconciliation with each other because we all have the exact same need for forgiveness. We're freed from evaluating and judging each other because none of us are righteous on our own. And this meal demonstrates that the veil has been torn. God's presence is available to all people. And this meal also demonstrates that the dividing wall has been broken. Our alienation from each other can be healed at this table. And the church in Acts lived united in reverence, awe, and fear about what all of this meant. And Jesus said that this good news, this gospel, the hope of reconciliation with God and each other, is also like a seed. It's small, it's easy to ignore, or count as insignificant, but it needs to be tended to, it needs to be watered, and given light and space to grow. And the question for us this morning is the same question it's always been. Where are we gonna put our trust? Where am I gonna put my trust? Am I gonna put my trust in how I feel? I feel like there's something between me and God. I feel like there's something between me and my brother. Am I gonna put my trust in that? Or am I gonna put my trust in what God speaks through this meal? The veil is torn and the wall is broken. That's the question this morning. And communion is one of those spaces where we can allow the good news of what Jesus has done room in our heart to take root and grow, become the kingdom that Jesus talked about. So you're invited again this morning. And I'll ask the band and the servers to come forward now. And I'll give some practical instructions on how we'll do this. As you feel ready, you are welcome to walk down the center aisle and receive the the gluten-free bread and the juice, and then return to your chair on the side aisles. Hold on to the bread and the cup until everyone is seated and we'll all lead us and we're going to partake in the meal together. And we want to invite those in the balcony. We want to invite you guys to come down first. So after they've returned, we invite those on the ground floor here to come and receive. Before that, let me just pray. Lord Jesus, We come before you in holy awe and reverence for what you have done. We come before you and acknowledge the cost of our reconciliation. It cost you your life, Jesus, and you poured out everything. You gave it all for us. And Jesus, you invite us this morning to your table to experience reconciliation with you, with the Father, and reconciliation with each other our brothers and sisters. And Lord, this is a small, humble gathering. We're far away from much of the disaster in our world. But Lord, we believe this act of peace has power today. And it ripples out into this world. So Jesus, we come and we receive the peace that you offer. Peace with God and peace with our brothers and sisters. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources to help further your study throughout the week, you can go to vbchurch.ca forward slash sermons.